If you have a copy of God's Word, I encourage you to turn this evening to Luke chapter 10. Luke's Gospel, chapter 10. And we'll begin reading at verse 25. One of the, you know, American sports are, are very interesting for an outsider. You have to, they're very distinct in their ways, which I'll not get into all the details of that now. But um, one, of the, one of them, just one of them, is of course the strange title given to the great uh, prize in baseball called the, the World Series. Always fascinating how they ever came up with that name, the World Series, when only one nation is interested in it. You know? It's like, because you, you, you draw, you know, relationships in your mind, you think of the World Cup, which is the soccer or football equivalent, and every nation is involved. I mean, they're, they're, they're doing preliminaries for years beforehand, and then there's the final 32 teams or whatever, that make it to the, the finals. And the world's represented. You know, every continent's there. But So when you, you hear about the World Series and it only relates to one nation, you think, who, who was thinking? You're like, what, what were they thinking in relation to that? Well, I say all that to, to say that it was very encouraging to see our brother Eric and a number of others going to address on Friday. There was thousands, ten, maybe hundreds of thousands, 200, maybe 300,000 there in Atlanta with uh, their victory. And uh, the gospel went out to them very clearly. So pray for the word that was preached to those thousands of people, the signs that were read of Scripture, and the, the prosperity of the word in hearts. We cast our bread upon many waters, and we trust we will find it after many days. And these souls need, need the gospel if it's if it doesn't do much else, it brings people together by the thousands uh, for a celebration of what might be relatively meaningless. But it brings them together, gives you a crowd to preach to. And we're thankful for those that have feel the burden and take advantage of that opportunity. Luke chapter 10, verse 25 is where we want to read from tonight. Our focus, of course, is into the parable, but we want to read the the preceding verses that are very important. Luke chapter 10, verse 25, let's hear the word of the Lord. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind. And thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. But he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment, and wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance, there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him 
and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him, and went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence and gave them to the host and said unto him, Take care of him. And whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Which now of these three, thinkest thou, was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said, He that showed mercy on him. Then said Jesus unto him, Go, and do thou likewise. Amen. May the Lord bless his word. This is the word of the living God. We thank God for the privilege of hearing it. And may God give us grace in the receiving of it tonight. Let's pray. Lord, we bless thee for thy word. It is forever settled in heaven. And we receive it with gladness. Even when it cuts to the quick of our hearts. When it exposes us. For the hypocrites and failures and sinners that we are, we bless thee because it drives us to Jesus Christ. Give help tonight. Give us the unction of the Spirit. Whatever we have prepared, whatever musings we have assembled to speak tonight, we pray above and beyond this there would be the empowerment of the Lord. Oh, blessed Spirit, fill us. Come upon this gathering. Speak to thy sheep. And for those without Christ, help us to lead them to thy open side. Oh, hear prayer then, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? That was a question put to Jesus in the opening of our reading, where our Lord was in in some place, most likely teaching, and a lawyer, hearing him teach, interjects and asks this question, tempting him, the language is, with this question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This man was no ordinary man. We're told that he was a lawyer. Therefore, he was a man that was eminent in the community, recognized, respected, had a certain position that was acknowledged to be of prestige. And this man he is, he is moved to address the Lord Jesus Christ in this way and inquire as to this question. Now, last time we considered this initial exchange, the opening verses here, verses 25 through 28, and we considered the question, we looked at it, and we sought to look at it in context and apply it appropriately to our own circumstances as well. We learned that the intention, just to remind you, is to test. So what we make of that may vary. We're not exactly sure whether it was malicious, whether it was a challenge rooted in pride. For example, he's, he's watching Jesus receive all of this attention, and he thinks to himself, you know, I'm going to interject here. I'm, I'm the master. I'm the, I'm the teacher of the law. I'm the expert here. And he feels his pride moving in to challenge the Lord. Or perhaps a legitimate inquiry to determine the authenticity of Christ. Let's just let's put him to the test, and it comes from this perspective of legitimately endeavoring to determine whether Christ is the real deal, as it were. We're not entirely clear as to the motive of the testing, but 
The genius of our Lord Jesus Christ, as I said last time, is that he turns the question back to him, which he often did. But in this scenario, in this case, the genius isn't just the answering a question with a question, but it is how, in doing so, he puts himself under the law, as it were. Our Lord Jesus puts himself open, makes himself open to whatever the law says, whatever is the the, the teaching of the Word of God, he's willing to receive. What saith the law. What is written in the law? Verse 26. How readest thou? What do you determine here? Now, of course, if the man misquoted, if he said something that was not according to the word, then no doubt the Lord would correct him there. But the man answers perfectly. He gives a perfect synopsis of the teaching of the law. Verse 27, where he deals with our love for God and our love for our fellow man. The two tables of the law are represented here. Now, Going on from there, verse 28, our Lord then says to him, This do and thou shalt live. And those words are are challenging because what the Lord is saying there in in the tense of the, the verb, he is telling them, keep doing this and you will live. If you're able to live this way, if you're able to to continue in perfect adherence to this, you will live. And the purpose of that, of course, is to, is to expose the man. It is to reveal the impossibility of what he is calling him to do. No man can do this. So the response of the lawyer, we're told in verse 29, he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, Who is my neighbor? And that brings us into this most famous, perhaps, of all parables. The parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, you've heard it many times. Probably, I would say, the vast majority of you, even the children, you're familiar with the parable of the Good Samaritan. And tonight, I want us to think about it. I don't know what will be new to you, but at the very least, I trust you will, you will feel the, the, the cutting. That, that's the purpose, you see. That The purpose of this parable is not to console. The purpose of the parable is to cut. It is not to commend the man. It is to convict the man. And sometimes we forget that. We, we, we look at this and we think, what a wonderful depiction here, what a wonderful parable. And it is wonderful. It is wonderful. But, but, but its real purpose is, is wonderful in this sense. It is designed to show its purpose is to expose the impossibility of man doing what God calls man to do. We're not to look at it and think, I'm great. I'm just like the Good Samaritan. We are to look at it and go, where is our hope? Where is our hope? If this is the demand laid upon us at the end of verse 37, go and do thou likewise. So tonight we're considering these verses, verses 29 through 37, under the title simply, Help Your Enemy. Help Your Enemy. I could have called it the Good Samaritan, the parable of the Good Samaritan, but, but I want us to maintain the focus. The focus here is a call to do something that is not easy for us to do and certainly is not easy for us to do perfectly, continually, all the time through our lives. So as we consider this, help your enemy, first of all, Scripture demands it. Scripture demands it. Why does a lawyer feel the need to justify himself? There may be a number of reasons given. At least we might say, because Christ is commanding him to do and keep doing the things that he says the law teaches. To love God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength, and 
his neighbor as himself. Now, as in an evaluating of that, there, there is this, this challenge to, to continue to do this. So he, he wants to justify himself. And if I can get into his mind, I think there's something in him that imagines the first part he's doing okay in, and the second part he wants to make sure he clarifies so that, again, he can justify that he has also fulfilled that. The first part, I think he, 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 is, he is certain. I, I know. I, I do that. And I think everyone can see because, because I'm a lawyer. You know, this is, this is my job. Obviously, I, I must love the Lord fully and completely. That's a given. But when it comes to the neighbor, the conviction there, it may be there, and he's, he's resisting it, and he resists it in the way that the Jews commonly did at that time. And he uses this faulty logic to brush it off, to cast it aside. So he, this question then, who is my neighbor, is, is his way of, of clarifying, at least in his mind, I want you to see that, that I do do this. But the answer is not going to be what he expects. Just to keep things in context before I forget, this whole discussion on the parable is connected with what we've read in verse 21 of the same chapter. When Jesus rejoiced in spirit and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and has revealed them unto babes. This man is showing that he is in the first category. These things are hidden to him. The very question, who is my neighbor, is, is, is really him endeavoring to get into philosophical discussion, to wax eloquent on something that ought to be so simple. So simple, we don't even need to ask the question. So, what is, first of all, Scripture's answer to the question? Scripture's answer to the question that is asked here. Who is my neighbor? Turn to Leviticus 19. I made mention of this last time because this is where he's drawing from in his answer to love our neighbor as ourselves. Leviticus 19. And I'll take time to read from verse 15. I want you to note the emphasis on the neighbor here. Leviticus 19, verse 15, Ye shall do no unrighteousness in judgment. Thou shalt not respect the person of the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty, but in righteousness shalt thou judge thy neighbor. So, so you see, there, there's certain responsibility here. And we're not to have these kind of biases that often we're inclined to. Verse 16, Thou shalt not go up and down as a talebearer among thy people, neither shalt thou stand against the blood of thy neighbor, I am the Lord. Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart. Thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. This is part of what we're to do. We're to help one another in our walk in obedience to the Lord. And then verse 18, Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. So the Jews, at least some of them, had come to a point where the preceding words of verse 18, and even they would start to color verses 15, 16, 17, but it's those opening words of verse 18, Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, that become the qualifying 
statement of who the neighbor is. The neighbor is only the children of thy people. They are only Jews. They are only those found within the camp of Israel. They are only those that belong to the nation. They are only the circumcised. That's how they read the text. And so the neighbor then is exclusively that. And that, that's, where, that's where the lawyer is. And Christ's assumption is going to blow, or that this assumption is going to be blown to pieces by the Lord Jesus Christ, which he has already done. Remember the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. Remember what he said? Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. Where are they getting that? They're getting that. This, this, this was assumed and understood because they, they, would, they would qualify it. The neighbor is only the Jew, and everyone else is our enemy. And they would have this persecution complex, and everyone's against them, the world is against them. And of course, they went through many trials that only added to this sense of, of a complex about the persecution they face within the world, which still exists to this day. And, and, they, they, and they feel it, and they, and they, 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 they use arguments, they use, they use certain little phrases, turns of phrases that, that they get used in order to remove judgment from themselves, that whenever judgment is upon the nation, they would say, as they did back then, that the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set in age. You find that in a couple of the prophets, Ezekiel 18 for 1. And so they're using this excuse, all the judgment we're deserving is because of our fathers, and we have all these enemies that are around us, and so on and so forth. But this is the point. They had come to a place where they could justify that their neighbor is only their own. It's only us. That's the limitation. That's the boundary. Everyone else are enemies. Now, our neighbor includes the Lord's people. But the point is not to make it exclusively so. There's nothing in Scripture to say exclusively that is where our love is to be. And that was what they were misunderstanding. So Scripture's answer to the question is plain. They, they, when he's asking this, when he's asking the question, who is my neighbor, the conclusion he's drawing from Scripture is wrong. We are to understand it to be, and as we'll see, it is far more broad that's part of the point of the parable. Also note, Scripture's answer to the priest and the Levite. When we come into the parable, Jesus answering, verse 30, said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. So the man is journeying from Jerusalem to Jericho. Therefore, we may, I think, safely assume that Jesus is portraying him as a Jew. This man who finds himself in this awful condition is a Jew. And so the question gets asked, why wouldn't the priest and the Levite help? Why? Look at it. Verse 31, by chance there came down a certain priest. We'll get to that, by the way. All you, all you Calvinists are reading that going, what? <laughs> by chance? What's this all about? Well, <laughs> by chance there came down a certain priest that way. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So, so he sees him, he sees him, and he just, he just passes by. And likewise, a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him. So it may be that the Levite actually comes close, gets a good look, before he decides to pass on by the other side. You ask yourself, why would they do this? 
This is one of their own. They're going to know that. This is one of their own. Why? Why would they just ignore him? Why would they pass on by? Well, one of the reasons often given, and it may be true, turn to Numbers chapter 19. Numbers chapter 19. And, and this is debated. And this passage that we will read here in Numbers 19, verse 11 and following, it's dealing with what the law taught concerning how we deal with the dead and the ceremonial uncleanness that comes by reason of our touching the dead and so on. Of course, one of the arguments is that, well, these men were coming from Jerusalem to Jericho, therefore they shouldn't have been worried about ceremonial uncleanness. It was irrelevant. They had had done their time. They had done their their couple of weeks there, and they're coming back, so they shouldn't be too worried. But, But I still think there's something possibly at play here. So just to familiarize yourself with this, Numbers 19, verse 11, He that toucheth the dead body of any man shall be unclean seven days. He shall purify himself with it on the third day, and on the seventh day he shall be clean. But if he purify not himself the third day, then the seventh day he shall not be clean. Whosoever toucheth the dead body of any man that is dead, and purifieth not himself, defileth the tabernacle of the Lord. That soul shall be cut off from Israel, because the water of separation was not sprinkled upon him. He shall be unclean. His uncleanness is yet upon him. This is the law. When a man dieth in a tent, all that come into the tent, and all that is in the tent, shall be unclean seven days. And every open vessel which hath no covering bound upon it is unclean. And whosoever toucheth one that is slain with a sword, or in the open fields, and that's probably more the context here, or a dead body, or a bone of a man, or a grave, shall be unclean seven days. And for an unclean person they shall take of the ashes of the burnt heifer of purification for sin, Running water shall be put thereto in a vessel, and a clean person shall take hyssop and dip it in the water and sprinkle it upon the tent and upon all the vessels and upon the persons that were there and upon him that touched a bone or one slain or one dead or a grave. And the clean person shall sprinkle upon the unclean on the third day and on the seventh day. And on the seventh day he shall purify himself, wash his clothes, bathe himself in water, and shall be clean even. But the man that shall be unclean and shall not purify himself that soul shall be cut off from among the congregation because he hath defiled the sanctuary of the Lord. The water of separation hath not been sprinkled upon him. He is unclean. I was dealing with this in classes recently about the, the Hasidim. These, these religious people, especially during the Hellenistic area, time period, just before the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ, they, they, were, they were good men. They, they sought to be good, do the right thing. I, I think we can see in them a holy intention. But, but what they were feeling, and, and there's a lot of parallels today too, what they were feeling was this encroaching Greek culture. And with that encroaching culture came this sense of trying to shore up all the things where, where you might have um, changes and, and the culture of the Jews is, is being kind of eroded away by the increasing influence of Greek life. And so in order to preserve it, what they did was they would take certain aspects of the law and they would put laws around the law. They would further gird it up. They would make it even more impossible, they thought, to break the law by adding extra laws around it. And so, for example, whenever it speaks of blasphemy and wrongly using the Lord's name, instead of recognizing that, that that's, that's sufficient... 
they thought, well, well, let's make sure that no one ever does that by saying that it's, it's wrong to even mention the Lord's name. It's just You can't say it at all. And the same goes for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was the same. They, they saw what, 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 how serious it was to break the Sabbath day, so they create all these added rules, all these extra rules in and around it, so that it would make it even more difficult for people to break the law. And here, I think, may be the same thing going on. The passage teaches that if you touch the dead, a carcass or anything of that nature, you are unclean. But it is not saying, it is not saying that it's wrong to teach, to touch the dead. It's just saying that there are lessons here. The corruption of death, the curse. And if you do so, there must be purification. There's gospel teaching being taught there, which I'll not get into tonight. But it's not forbidding it. It's not saying that a man who deals with the dead and handles them and so on, that that man has some illegitimate work. It's just a recognition that the Lord has put in this messages to be understood. But instead, these men had so shored themselves and protected themselves from these things, they wouldn't even, they wouldn't even possibly consider the touching someone where they might be made unclean. And therefore, as it says here, verse 20, they'll be cut off from among the congregation. They're adding to it in such a way where they see a man, as the Scripture says, who's half dead, and they won't go near him. They think that's revealing the heart of God. That's doing the will of God, but it's not. It is not at all. So, I think that may be undergirding their reasoning. It's one of their own. They don't even have the excuse to say he's not a neighbor, even by their own wrong exegesis of the passage. They, they can't even stand supported by that. But, but they'll say, well, there's a danger that we might be cut off from the congregation. If we were to touch this person and he was to die in our arms, then we would be unclean. So they pass by. They look on him and just leave him there. I like to think there was at least some logic there, and it wasn't just that they were, they were <laughs> just totally indifferent to the man's need. So, Scripture, scripture demands that, that, we help, that we help our neighbor. That's, that's, that's what we learn from these verses. It's what the parable enforces upon us, that this is, this is all wrong. This is not how to deal with men. Scripture teaches to, to see our neighbor everywhere, and we'll see more of that in just a moment. But secondly, providence orchestrates it. In helping our enemy, providence orchestrates it. And let me just, just back up. Maybe you're wondering, well, what, what's, what's the enemy here? The enemy is, is recognizing that <laughs> the one who's going to help, right, the Samaritan, is helping a Jew, Okay? He, he's, they are meant to be at odds. We'll see that in just a moment, but I, I just want you to, to get that in your head, that what's going on here, what Jesus portrays here, is a man who helps what, what the society would say, you're at odds with each other, you're enemies of one another, and yet the man, the man is willing to help. So providence orchestrates our helping of our enemy. Note firstly, providence orchestrates the encounter. Verse 31, by chance... By chance, there came down a certain priest. That is by accident. It's the only time you find this word in the entire New Testament. 
And the, whole, the sense is simply that it's unintentional, right? It's not, it's not saying that things happen and God doesn't know that they're happening, or God's not aware that they're going on, or the world's kind of spinning out of control and the Lord's just watching on. That's, that's not the sense of it at all. It's just an, an unintentional event, not planned. And this whole thing's not planned. You have four people that traverse this same road. You have the man who's taken by thieves and beaten and left half dead. You have the Levite, you have the priest, and you have the Samaritan, all traveling that way. Only one of them ends up falling among thieves. Only one. There's no moral failure here. It's one of those things. And without any planning, these, the priest sees him, the Levite sees him, the Samaritan sees him as they navigate their journey. I think that's an important point. Now, the help, the help that often we are called to, to give and show to people is, is found in those instances that we never plan, the things that we don't intend. We left that morning never imagining that this would be put before us. Of course, there are those that love, they love this passage because they try to push some kind of economic perspective onto it. This is a good passage for socialism. You know, you see, you see someone who's a victim. You see these baddies who won't go near him. They're the capitalists. They want nothing to do with, with, with them. But, but there's a good socialist who comes along and he understands that what, what's mine is yours and we're just all going to share it. And <laughs> of course, none of that's there at all. As I was reading this, I was thinking, why did the thieves attack him in the first place? His garment was exhibiting wealth. He wasn't, he wasn't a beggar by the street. He wasn't an ordinary person. There was, there was wealth portrayed by this man. That's why the thieves honed in on him. He's part of the problem. He's, he's for the socialist. You point that out to them, they might think, well, he got what he deserves. No, I don't know. The Samaritan also is acting completely voluntarily. It's not centralized government coercion or force. And he's also helping someone who cannot help themselves. He, he's half dead. He is half dead. He can't do anything. We're not talking about an able-bodied person here at all. Now, I'm emphasizing the, the kind of providential aspect of this because the passage does. And the point here is that we get tested in our love for God and for man often in times that we never, that we were just not in control of. We never imagined they would come our way. We didn't think that they would occur on that given, in that given moment. Now, I'm not opposed. In fact, I support ministries that seek to help certain subsections of our community. It doesn't matter what it might be, the homeless, addicts, refugees, victims of human trafficking, those seeking abortion. These are good and worthy causes. And as long as the gospel undergirds all efforts, as long as there isn't the enabling of sin, 
which far too often is the case, then I'm all in support of it. But here's the thing. You can't do everything, and I can't do everything. I can't be involved in, in, in the homeless, addicts, refugees, victims of human trafficking, those seeking. I can't do all of this, plus everything else in, in my own calling in life. I can't do all of that. Now, I may, I may help. I may disciple others. I may encourage them. I may be able to, if they say, I have a burden here. And I've said this to some of you. I've said, you know, you know what is your calling? What is your burden? And, and where has the Lord placed you? And what, what are you meant to be doing and, and involved with? We will help you. We will help you fulfill whatever that calling is. But we can't do everything. No one person can do it all. You, you simply cannot. And so while we support all these things and other things that go on, we recognize that no one person can do all of this. And so really, our tests don't come by the fact that I'm involved in ten different needs within the community, all these various areas. I'm involved in them all. That's not necessarily how it gets challenged or not necessarily how we are to, to do what God calls us to do. However, however, as I'm saying, this is what we need to understand. You will be tested. In the providence of God, you will be tested as to whether you have a heart, really, for people. Providence will orchestrate your encounters with others. And you will be at times face-to-face with a need. And sometimes that need will be really evident. It's very clear, and you think, this, this is a given. But most of the time, it is not. Many times, you're doing this, this kind of battle in your mind. And mental gymnastics are trying to figure out, is, is this legitimate? Am I enabling sin here? Is this person lying to me? If they're lying to me and I help them in this way, I, I, I'm enabling them in sin. But if they're not lying and I walk away, then, then I'm, I'm, I'm hard-hearted and I'm, I'm not showing the love of Christ. And their thought of, of, of Christ and His people is brought into disrepute. Oh, you... If you've not been there, I imagine at least some of you have been there. It is not a pleasant place to be. And certainly, you, you face it, and people come to you. Sometimes it's, you know, the story is so, <laughs> it's so convoluted. And, and you can see it in their eyes. They're just, they're kind of, they're just, they're just lying. They're just lying. You, know, you can see it almost immediately. But, but some of them have refined the art, and it is extremely difficult to discern and I've told you before, I've told you before, that when I'm in that place where I don't know, I just pray for wisdom, and I give what I can, and I do what I can, and leave it with the Lord. And I, they may be stealing and lying, but so be it. Providence orchestrates your encounters with people. Be very careful how you deal with those providential encounters. But also, providence challenges our prejudices. There is no place for prejudice in the Christian life. The man who helps is a Samaritan. And I'm inclined to think, for, for, for millennia, we have told stories, and parts of those stories get told in, in threes. You know, there's this man, the other man, and the other man. All right? It's, we, we tell stories in that way. We, we're we're so hardwired to put things into three. 
preacher knows this. Usually it's three points. And part of the reason why it's three points is because you're hardwired to look for three points. Well, in this instance, you have, you have a crowd that are standing there. And the Lord then begins to tell this story of a certain priest. Okay? And a Levite. And, and you can just see the common people watch you go and say, ha ha, yes, yes, stick it to the religious elite. You know, obviously the one who's going to help is going to be just a, maybe a poor Jew. Maybe that's what it's going to say. And a certain poor Jew came along and helped. And that's, that's, that's where they're all going, this crowd. You can just see it. They're all standing there waiting. Uh, I'll show the lawyer. You know, because he's there. The Lord, the Lord is depicting him as the priest and the Levite. You're found there. The likelihood is you're found because, because that's in your heart. And so they're all, they're all watching, waiting to see the Lord just stick it into this man. And then he says, but a certain Samaritan. And they're all aghast. <gasps> it cannot be. It cannot be. You know, as I thought about this, I thought, I am, I am, I am really, I'm really inclined to think that there's, there's an element of truth in this parable. That, that these events actually happened in some fashion, though they get remolded by the Lord, and the lawyer himself, and maybe even beyond, are aware. Because in the mind of the Jew, they would say, that, that just wouldn't happen. There would not be a Samaritan who would help the Jew. He would be just like the priest and the Levite. He would pass by on the other side, though his reasons would be different. He would have absolutely no interest in helping. So your, your, your parable, Master, Rabbi, it doesn't land. It doesn't land because it would never happen. So, so I'm inclined to think that there's, there's something truthful here. Something there where it maybe even happened to the lawyer himself, maybe his father or his brother. So the Lord offends them all. Verse 33, a certain Samaritan as he journeyed came where he was. When he saw him, he had compassion on him. And went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the morrow when he departed, he took out two pence, and gave them to the host, and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. You can get bogged down in the details here, and some commentators and preachers they do that. I, I don't think that's helpful. Always remember the parables. It's the, the, par, the details aren't the point of the parable. The point is the point of the parable. The details just, they're, 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 they're garnish to, to help you see the scene. And so there may be some things in, in some of these points and the, the oil and the wine and so on, but I think often too much is made of it. The point is simply this. Someone, someone who was an enemy of another person helped when others would not, even his own, those of his own countrymen. So, the prejudice, the prejudice gets challenged in the Samaritan. What will the Samaritan do? There he's walking. 
and he, he could have this same conversation in his head. And like I say, it's, it's different. The arguments are different than the priest and the Levite, but it's the same conversation. Should I get involved? And when he looks over and he sees he's a Jew, he thinks, nah, and walks on. The Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And it wasn't one-sided. The Samaritans hated the Jews as much as the Jews hated the Samaritans. This man, however, sets aside his prejudice. And this is exactly what we're called to do. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.16, Wherefore, henceforth know we no man after the flesh. Right? We don't look at men after the flesh. That's not how we deal with men. I, 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 Paul had all his, these prejudices. They all were very evident in his own heart. But he had come to the point, henceforth know we no man after the flesh. We don't look at them purely by their, their characteristics, by the demographics, by whatever. We don't. And so when I'm using prejudice to dodge my responsibility, I am in sin. I'm in sin. You can't get it. You can't get how the Samaritan would feel towards the Jew or how the Jew felt toward the Samaritan. You, you can't step into that because you're not there. You are not there. Now, there's some, there's some animosity here in America. And as bad as it has been at times, you know, there's, there's, there's the other nations where, where this is just, this is Constant. Constant. And what's sad is when you, you see it on the news here, and it's almost causing more polarization among people. And they, they elevate it like America's such a bad country. And I'm thinking, it's bad. You're not helping. But most nations on the earth, it's far worse. I mean, you have, you have hatred that has gone on for centuries and millennia. The Samaritan displays, Romans 12, 20, If thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. He had compassion on him. And I like that part. I like that part because he's not just doing it out of a sense of duty. He's not doing it because maybe someone might see me. He is actually feeling for this person. He is feeling for someone all those that he's connected with, the, the, the very environment of his youth and how he was brought up, where he went to school, everything about it is telling him, hate that person. Don't go near them. And he has compassion. So providence orchestrates the encounter. It challenges our prejudices. Yes, the Lord will... He will providentially bring things that will challenge your prejudice. <laughs> he will. If you have them, if you have certain prejudice in your heart, expect the Lord to challenge them. And you will have these little moments where you're thinking, you're, you're trying to just box in all these people. You put them in these generalized boxes. Those kind of people. And those kind of people. And that's where they come from, and that's what they're like, and that's what you're tempted to do. I 
And as soon as those thoughts begin entering your mind, know this, you are without compassion. Providence challenges the extent of our love. It challenges the extent of our love. We've read the verses, verses 33 through 35. You see what he is prepared to do. He saw him, he had compassion on him. Okay, so he's showing love. He went to him and bound up his wounds. Okay, that's, that's, that's good. I, I can see him taking from, from some garment that he has and, and tearing it into strips prepared to, to tear up his own clothing or some other item that he has. And he binds up the wounds. He pours in oil and wine. Again, he, he takes what he has to, to help alleviate the pain and the suffering. He sets him on his own beast. He was going somewhere. He was going somewhere. He had his plan for the day. He had, he had it all, all set out because he goes to the end. He has to, he has to go. He can't stay at the end. He has, he has business to do. But, but he gets delayed and he happily embraces the delay to grab this man bind up his wounds, take him to an inn. He stays the night, probably has been delayed by it all, takes out two pence, gives them to the host, take care of him, if you, whatever, whatever you need, whatever, whatever's needed, when I come again, I'll pay it. So, so he thinks of his physical need, he thinks of his financial need at that time, and he's prepared to do whatever it takes. Now, I know, I know that this is challenging. And we can look at this and we can draw certain conclusions that would be unhealthy. They would start to be in conflict with other verses. And I can't get into all the nuance of qualifying what goes on here. That's not my purpose tonight. This is not a message on economics and how we deal with this. But let's not miss the message. Let's not, see the let's not miss the example that is put before us. And what's encouraging is to remember our own heritage. The Good Samaritan became such a driving principle in so many things we take for granted. Christians start at the hospitals. Christians start at the schools. Christians led the way in the orphanages. Christians saw the need. And they threw themselves into it. They saw what was going on and they threw themselves into it. And they, they did whatever they could to try and alleviate the suffering, especially of those on their own doorstep. And again, that's the providence of God. That's where you are. You can't help every orphan in the world. And you can't help every homeless person in the world. You can't even help all of the ones that are in your own community. But, but that's where you start. That's where you're called to begin. We have abandoned, we, much of the Christian church has abandoned what it used to spearhead, the erecting of institutions that help their fellow man. All these things that used to be so commonplace and only really driven by those who are believers. And we, we've kind of just stepped away from it all. Now you can't, you can't help everyone and I can't help everyone. I've already said that. Every one of us has a limited set of skills but I'm not sure we're always as good as we could be at applying them. There are things going on in Greenville. There are needs in Greenville. And we, we could be involved on an individual basis and maybe even in a corporate way. I don't know. I, I do think I get burdened about this. I do. 
I was just talking with a brother this past week about what he's involved with. And I've, I've talked to him before. And, you know, it piques your, your curiosity. You can't help but see the, the need there. You know, I, I can't help every addict. I can't. I, I mean, it, addictions, especially drug addictions, are, are is a very nuanced and it's very difficult to help them. In some way, you almost have to think as they think. Therefore, you have to have been where they are in order to really help them. It's just one of those things. But, but I, I see what's going on. I'm thankful that there's what Miracle Hill do and overcomers and all the rest of it. I'm very thankful for it. But, but one of the limitations, one of the limitations is it gets them clean. And once they're clean, then they're, they're out on their own. And I've talked to some of them. They, they, they talk about how, how terrified they were in the two weeks prior or the days prior to when they're meant to be going. Why are they terrified? Why are they terrified? They've been clean for weeks. Why are they terrified? They're terrified because they're going to be sent out and they don't have the first clue how to do the things that you take for granted. They've never had a bank account. They don't have a driver's license. They don't know how to balance a checkbook. They, they, they don't know anything about life. Where do I get a job at these things? And, and the weight of, of responsibility crushes them. And they think the best thing to do is to relapse and then go through the whole process of being clean again. That's what goes on. The brother I was talking to is involved in what's known as transitional housing, where instead of throwing them into the deep end and hoping that they survive, which most of them don't, brings them into a safe place where they are helped in getting an account, getting their license, getting a job, having responsibility around the home, learning to take care of your, your own stuff and wash, do all these things, these, these chores of the household. And I think that that's a really good thing. That's a really good thing. Because also you're dealing with people that are ready to be discipled and helped. And I think of the, the kind of the acorn, the trickle-down effect. If that life gets discipled in the mind of Christ and transformed, it's not just them you're helping. It's everyone they will touch. And some of them are married. They have kids. Or they have broken the relationship with their parents. And, and you're, you're, you're impacting them and then you're impacting others. I think that's wonderful. That's just one example. One example of the kind of thing that, that, that I see and I can't, I can't get rid of it in my own heart. I just think, maybe, maybe we could do something there. I don't know. That's a need. Like, that's a need right now here in Greenville. Like, it's not like there's enough transitional homes out there. There aren't. And I think, maybe, maybe. What would the Lord have us to do? I don't know. But we, my, here's my point, whether that's the case or not. My point is this. There are all these needs out there, and we have become very adept at stepping away from those needs and passing by on the other side. And that grieves me, concerns me. So as we bring this to a close, we need to see thirdly, Christ exemplifies it. Christ exemplifies it. As you look at this text, it's common for people to come to it, especially good preachers, they come to it and they see Christ here as the good Samaritan. Now, <laughs> I'm in favor of that with qualification. 
I'm in favor of it with qualification for this reason. If I immediately come and see Christ as a good Samaritan, then when I get to the end, verse 37, go and do thou likewise, then I think he did it and I don't have to be, I don't, I don't feel the conviction. The point of the parable, like I said, the point of the parable is to cut you. It is to convict you. And it is to show you that you fall short. And so Christ is speaking this in order to lay us low. This proud lawyer, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? What, what kind of attitude is that? But Christ truly is, by implication, by secondary application of the text, he is the good Samaritan. Since it requires that the one who we are to exemplify is the one who showed mercy, verse 37 was prepared to do everything that was necessary to recover this person, to, to raise them from death to life. That's what he's doing. And it is encouraging to know that Jesus is the one who did do as the good Samaritan did. But don't let us interpret it that way first. to feel the conviction. Before I draw this to a close, I want you to think about how, the, how we think about our neighbor. What point the Lord is making. Verse 37, or 36 rather, when he says, Which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? Who was neighbor to him? That, do you see how he's framing that? He's framing it not from the position of the man who passed by the man. He's framing it from the position of the man. Who, who was neighbor to the man? He's bringing into, into the frame, he is bringing in the man who was lying half dead. Now, think on this. Instead of seeing whether or not you're the priest or the Levite or the Samaritan, instead of looking there, I want you to be in the shoes of the man half dead. And then ask yourself, who does that man consider his neighbor? Anyone who will help. He doesn't care. He's not looking, he's not kind of prying through his bruised eyes and trying to see, oh, you're a Samaritan, get away from him. He, he just wants help. And this is, this is the point. When you're trying to navigate the needs that you see around you, when providence puts needs at your doorstep, stop thinking about whether or not you, you know, what's, what's, how am I to deal with it? And you get into this whole kind of battle with yourself. Try, try. If the person legitimately is, is a need... Try to be there. Try to imagine what it's like to be at wit's end. To have nothing. To, 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 to feel that, that helplessness. And when you're there, then, then all you're doing is just begging for someone. Just, just someone. Someone look at me. Someone see me. Uh, they all saw him, but they didn't really see him. Only the good Samaritan saw him. And we can't, 
Sometimes we can't see people. So, this is, this is the need. I am convicted. I am convicted because I can't go and do likewise. I want to, but I can't. But I want to. <laughs> so, I'm, I'm resting in the Lord, who's the perfect good Samaritan, but I'm also realizing that we are to 1 John 2, verse 6, walk even so as he walked. And so I think to myself, there are needs in Greenville, and there may be ways in which we can help more than what we're doing at present. I want every heart in this church to be open. If we have to say no because we don't have the manpower, that's okay. This is a practical thing. The province of God dictates we don't have the manpower. We just can't do it. But, but I don't want us to immediately come to, to begin at... We don't begin at impossible. We begin. There's a need. If the Lord is in it, He will help us meet that need. Lord, help us. Let's bow together in prayer. You may be here tonight, and while I have given my attention primarily to the Lord's people, and to challenge our complacency as Christians. You may be here and you're lost, you're not saved. And what I want you to realize is that you're, you're like the man half dead. In your sin, you're half dead. You're alive, you're here, but you're also dead. The spiritual part of you is dead. You're dead in trespasses and in sins. You can't raise yourself to life. You have no hope in yourself. This church can't save you. Your family can't save you. Working for yourself can't save you. You need Christ. And the Good Samaritan is here tonight. The Lord Jesus is here to save. He seeks. He saves the lost. And if you're here and you realize, I'm that man. I need someone to see me. I've been battling with my sin. I've been battling with my unbelief. I know that I'm a sinner. I know I deserve hell. I feel myself cut off from God. If you understand that, there is a good Samaritan here tonight who will pass by, not on the other side, but right near to where you are. And he will do everything necessary to save your soul. If you need any help, if you have any questions in relation to salvation, or where you stand before God, please feel free to see me afterwards. I can talk with you, open the word, and and we'll certainly pray for you. Lord, we ask thy blessing upon thy word. You know how challenged we've been this week and how I just, I just want this church never to get complacent to the needs in our city. Where we have this, this nice holy huddle here on Haywood Road and there are people perishing and there are needs around us 
and we're very selective in, in what we can do. We can't do everything, thou knowest. We're small, thou knowest. But Lord, I would pray thy spirit would place on hearts here what this church ought to be involved with. If there's something else, Lord, whatever it is, if there's something else, make it so nag in our hearts, so provoke us to prayer, Just give us no rest where we're meant to be doing something else than what we're doing presently. We put our lives in thy hands. We put this church in thy hands. Take us on, Lord. Help us to make an impact in Greenville and beyond. Go with your people. Thank you for every one of them for the way many of them have tender hearts and do do exhibit a good Samaritan spirit in the needs around them. Give us more generous hearts. Be with us in our fellowship. Go with us to your homes. Remember those who go downstairs. Bless the food to us. May thy presence be in our conversation. May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people now and evermore.